Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Roger Kahn, who died on February 6, 2020, at the age of 92, was one of the icons in the world of baseball writing. His classic, The Boys of Summer, about his relationship with his father and their united love for the Brooklyn Dodgers is one of the greatest baseball books of all time. He started his career in journalism in 1948 as a copyboy for the New York Herald Tribune and within four years was covering the Dodgers for that newspaper. He moved over to Newsweek in 1956 and the Saturday Evening Post in 1963 as he revved up his career writing both fiction and non-fiction books, mostly but not exclusively about baseball and the ups and downs of his own life. On October 13, 1993, Richard Lupoff and I sat down for an extended interview with Roger Kahn about his book, The Era, 1947-1957, When the Yankees, the Giants, and the Dodgers Ruled the World. It turned out he was a marvelous raconteur as well as a keen historian of racism in the sport. In fact, his final book, published in 2014, was titled Ricky, that's Branch Ricky, and Robinson, Jackie Robinson, The True Untold Story of the Integration of Baseball. A couple of points before we get into it. First, when the talk rolls around to black managers and coaches, I took a look to see how many had... I took a look to... A couple of points before we get into it. First, when the talk rolls around to black managers and coaches, I took a look to see how much had changed in our, quote, woke era. Actually, very little. Currently, of the 30 major league managers, two are black. Dave Roberts of the Dodgers and Dusty Baker of the Astros. And Baker was only hired after the Astros' sign-stealing scandal forced then-manager A.J. Hinch to be fired. Of third-base coaches in 2020, only three are black, though there are 12 over at first base. So much for diversity where it counts. Also, the interview delves quickly on the subject of the increased home runs of 1993. No mention is made of steroids, of juicing. Steroids had been around since the 1970s, but it wasn't until the early 90s that the use became epidemic. Obviously, based on this interview, in 1993, the public, such as Dick and myself, we did not know of their use, and Roger Kahn never brought it up either, though within a couple of years of the interview, many folks knew that players such as Oakland A's Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire were juicing up with impunity. Roger Kahn, a lot of your books seem to always come back to the era, as the boys of summer, and yet, even in uh, your book about the minor leagues, you're constantly coming back to the era, that time, 1947 to 57. What is it about that time in baseball, do you think? Was that, that was the epitome of what baseball was. It was the one time 
when baseball really did what it advertises itself as doing, it, it kind of was a beacon to the country. Remember, World War II was just over. People felt pretty good about what the United States had done. Hitler was defeated. Uh, the good war was over. Uh, people again began to rediscover and fall in love with baseball, partly because of the great players who had been in service, uh, the Ted Williams, Joe DiMaggio, Stan Musial, came back. Hank Greenberg came back. And at that time, uh, Branch Rickey, uh, president of the Dodgers, brought into the major leagues the first black player in the history of Major League Baseball. Suddenly, in, in the midst of feeling good about ourselves, we were forced to become aware of our own terrible racism. The Robinson experience was an ordeal. Baseball image makers say there were one or two recalcitrants. Hell with that. There were huge recalcitrants. The press was not good. The sporting news said it's not fair to the boy. It was an ordeal, but then it was a triumph, and the triumph was Jackie Robinson's. And I would say that that was one time uh, when baseball really led the country, and I think the 10 years of Jackie Robinson become, in retrospect, uh, the greatest period in American sport. You said just now that Robinson was the first, but actually in your book, The Era, uh, you're a little bit more circumspect about that. You mentioned the year 1891 for a different reason. I, I'd like you to expand on that because this is a controversy that's forever bubbling up when people start talking about these matters. There was a, a 19th century uh, player named Fleet Walker who played for Toledo in the, uh, in the major leagues. It's arbitrary. You know, was that really major league baseball? Were the Cincinnati Red Stockings uh, of 1869 a major league team? Uh, practically, I think it makes the most sense to say that baseball really began, at, uh, Major League Baseball really began about the turn of the century, the first World Series, bringing the Boston uh, Pilgrims in, the era of McGraw, Matthewson. Uh, that was the start of Major League Baseball. And one of the first things that happened was a, an agreement among all of the owners that uh, no Negroes, no blacks were going to be allowed to play in, in the major leagues. And the leader, particular leader of that was this fellow Cap Anson, who today is in the Hall of Fame. Judge Landis, <laughs> the, the first and most famous baseball commissioner, made a statement uh, that uh, there was no such agreement. He's the only baseball commissioner to be named after a Civil War battle. Mr. Confederacy, during World War Two, Paul Robeson, who is this person? This person was an All-American end at Rutgers. He was a great bass baritone. His performance as Othello uh, was a legend and a politically active man. Uh, Robeson addressed the owners of the 16 major league teams and said that Negroes were dying all over the world uh, for the American cause, wouldn't it be nice if surviving Negroes were given a chance to play baseball in the major leagues? And Robeson spoke with such power and eloquence that the 16 owners burst into applause. Kennesaw Mountain Landis, the commissioner, immediately called a press conference and said there was no barrier whatsoever to uh, Negroes playing in the major leagues. That was the first commandment of the major leagues. I mean, first you said no Negroes, then you said 60 feet, 6 inches from mound to plate. 
So they denied the racism, but uh, you know it was you know it was an unspeakable lie. What about Latino ball players? I mean, I, I noticed that in those early days there were none. Were there any? Let's call them white Latino ball players. There, there were, and particularly in the Washington Senators, had numbers of, of white Cuban players. And there were always accusations that really that's you know they were secretly black. So I think what you can really say with absolute accuracy with with uh, Robinson is that this was the first black in the modern major leagues with a ball club admitting that he was black. And one of the things about the old Brooklyn Dodgers, their uniforms, they had this marvelous white. Uh, Larry King said he never saw a white as white as Brooklyn Dodger white. And then Jackie Robinson was not a compromising uh, fellow, and there was nothing pale about Jack. Jack's color was imperial ebony. So there, number 42 in this white uniform with those black arms, you knew what he was. Is it my memory, but I recall Robinson being a Republican. Oh, no, you, 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 you recall correctly. <laughs> In fact, after the era, I went to, I was writing for the Saturday Evening Post for a little while. I had lunch with Jack, and he said he had gone to see John Kennedy and said to Kennedy, what do you think about the race relations in America? And Kennedy said, I'm quoting Robinson, that uh, having been a congressman and senator from Massachusetts, he had not had a chance to meet too many Negroes. And Robinson said, I thought if you're in Congress that long, it's your business to meet Negroes. He then went to talk to Nixon, and Nixon uh, said that he be believed in, in the civil rights movement. And then I said to Robinson, uh, do you believe Dick Nixon? He said, on this one point, I do. I said, but there's more than one point in this election. And uh, Robinson said, yes, there are pressure groups working for all of those points. I'm a pressure group for civil rights. So John Kennedy turned off Jackie Robinson, and uh, Robinson drifted off into the Republican Party. I should also perhaps add that uh, historically, uh, many blacks uh, were Republican because it was the party of Abraham Lincoln, not as rare as one would think. But there was also uh, the, his comments toward the end of his life, which you quote, in which he defends Paul Robeson, who was, you know, a communist. Well, I don't know if Robeson was a communist. Or close uh, to it. Close, yeah, yeah. He was, he was a, a uh, I hate to, you know, just say that somebody was when there's never any actual evidence that, that he was. Uh, he was a, a very, very pro-Soviet. And he made statements that if there were a war during the Cold War, uh, McCarthy era, if there were a war between the United States and the Soviet Union, no American Negro should or would fight for the United States. And he went on to say, if Negroes are going to fight, let them fight where they are being lynched in Alabama. Well, the establishment press got hold of that and uh, just blew it up wildly. And then Robeson got his back up. And Jackie Robinson was asked by the notorious House Un-American Activities Committee, chaired by a Georgia Republican, to make a speech countering uh, Paul Robeson's statement and in effect defend the loyalty of American Negroes. Robinson didn't much want to do that, but the president of the Dodgers, a uh, kind of father figure to him, insisted. Uh, Robinson worked for a long time with the, the Lester Granger of the Urban League and made quite a moving, rather centrist statement uh, saying in it that he did, was not an expert on communism, fascism, or any other ism. 
but he was an expert at being a colored American because he'd had 30 years experience at that. Uh, late in his life, in 1972, Jack was uh, blinded by diabetes and high blood pressure, and I spent some time with him opening his mail and such, and he, I asked about the robes and thing. He said, well, I would never, ever do that again. And uh, he, I said, why? You had your disagreements. He said, we, we did indeed, but we had a larger disagreement. Uh, we were both black men in a prejudiced white society, I would never speak against Paul Robeson today. Moving ahead in, in terms of racism you know, to the modern era, charges of racism continue. Hank Aaron is, has said there's virtually no executives, black executives in baseball. Um, if you look at pitching staffs, there are not as many black pitchers as there are white pitchers, and certainly the percentage is different than in the era, than if you look at the uh, ball players, and if you look at the managers, integration of the managers happened very recently, and there still isn't much, even though there are many qualified people, including Joe Morgan, who are not managers. I was on a television program with Ted Koppel and Al Campanis. <laughs> yes. yes. You remember Al Campanis. <laughs> well, I was asked what I thought Jackie Robinson would uh, feel about the state of blacks in baseball at the time. It was 1987, the 40th anniversary of Robinson's debut, and uh, the travel agent who was the commissioner of baseball had every uh, second base in the major leagues painted with the number 42, and I thought, oh, had they only been that uh, nice and respectful to Robinson when he was alive. So I said I didn't think Robinson would be very pleased with the state of the blacks in baseball since there were no black owners and Jack was believed in capitalism, no general managers who picked the teams, no managers. And Koppel said in that sort of formal way he has, uh, uh, Mr. Campanis, is Mr. Khan's statement true? And if it is, to what do you attribute it? And then Campanis said, because blacks lacked necessities by which he meant intelligence. He later amplified to say the blacks couldn't swim because they lacked buoyancy. And there was a, <laughs> there was a major reaction by the Dodgers to this, which I think indicates the nature of baseball racism. The first statement by Peter O'Malley was that the Dodgers were in the forefront of the fight for civil rights, as they had been with Jackie Robinson years before, because they had a black scout. They had 38 white scouts. And then... They fired Al Campanis. They have not had a black manager. They have not had a third base coach who was black. The nuance there is that uh, you can have a first base coach that they've had who is black. What does a first base coach do? He pats the guy who singled on the butt and says, nice hitting. <laughs> and then when the pitcher turns to pick the man who are first, he says, back. You don't have to be terribly intelligent to do those things. But at third, well, you have to be able to think. You have to tug your ear, give a take sign, give a lot of signs. They've never had a black third base coach in the Dodgers. But what they did do in the wake of Campanis' self-immolation was hire a very able, very gifted fellow named Tommy Hawkins as vice president for public relations. So that's what they have today. They have a black PR man, and the decision about baseball are made by whites. What about Don Newcomb? Well, Don Newcomb is a uh, community relations feller. And he oh, goes I, thought he, I thought he did player development. He did, he's a PR man, too? He's a PR man. He goes around to telling his story about his battle with alcoholism, and it's a, noble, it's a noble story. But no, Newcomb is not. The people who run the 
run the Dodger farm system and pick the players are overwhelmingly white. Well, Junior Gilliam, um, he was black, and he did. He wasn't he a coach for them for a while? He, but first base. He was a first base, first base coach. coach. Yeah, that was pointed out to me by Alan Roth, the Dodger statistician. He said you you missed it. It's not just managers. The Dodgers wouldn't let him be there as a third base coach. And of course, one of the confusions that the Dodgers promulgate is that this particular family, uh, the ruling family of uh, Dodger Stadium, is the family that was uh, influential in getting Robinson into baseball. Uh, Oak and Trer, that was Branch Rickey. Rickey was forced out of Brooklyn baseball in a bloody corporate fight with Walter O'Malley. Walter O'Malley uh, and Robinson disliked each other. Now, Walter O'Malley was not, a, you know, he's a Hitlerian uh, or a Klan-type feller. But he was actually just more comfortable with blacks who were Pullman porters than with blacks who were Jackie Robinson. Uh, the qualities in Robinson, DeRocher was fiery. Leo DeRocher was fiery. Eddie Stanky was a competitor. Jackie Robinson was uppity. It was that kind of double standard. So as soon as he could... O'Malley sold Robinson's contract to the Giants, and then he wrote a uh, he wrote a letter, and uh, he said it was a very sad day. It was even sadder for O'Malley when Robinson quit and sold his life story for look for a little more money than he would have been paid by the Giants. You mentioned that um, that Eddie Stanky was fiery and Jackie Robinson was uppity. If I were on there, I'd be a pushy Jew. How did Jews fare during the era? It's a good question. Uh, I've got to go back a little further. Hank Greenberg, a great home run hitter, said that during the whole World Series of 34, long before the era, Dizzy Dean said, going to strike you out, Mo," and the Cardinal bench erupted in peals of laughter. Jewish ball players during the era, uh, Koufax came along. Sandy Koufax, he was not, didn't come along quickly. So... I can remember O'Malley, Walter O'Malley saying to me in his Tammany base, all the years I was in Brooklyn, I wanted a Jewish star. I couldn't find one. Now I come out here to Los Angeles. I can fill my ballpark with nine Chinamen. And what do I get? Sandy Koufax. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful Dodger pitcher, uh, Carl Erskine, who set a World Series strikeout record, pitched a couple of no-hitters. Uh, he's an intensely uh, religious, evangelical kind of uh, fellow, but not offensively so. One day we were spending some time, and uh, he mentioned the Fellowship of Christian Athletes about five times in 20 minutes. And I said, uh, Carl, if you're going to do that one more time, one more Fellowship of Christian Athletes reference, I'm going to walk out of here and organize the Fellowship of Jewish Athletes. And Erskine sort of blinked, and he said, uh, who, uh, who might that be? I said, uh, Greenberg, Koufax, Erskine said, not numerous but very gifted. <laughs> How about Moberg? Moberg was a catcher. He was a linguist. He was a very brave man who was dropped behind Nazi lines during World War II because he, he was such a wonderful linguist. But as a ball player, the remark about Moberg, who was, uh, has, as Stengel would say, presently dead, uh, sorry, <laughs> sorry about this, Mo, but the line was, Mo Borg could speak 11 languages, but he couldn't hit in any of them. Uh, I'd like to revert to an earlier book of yours, a wonderful uh, nonfiction book called Good Enough to Dream. 
chronicles your year as a minor league baseball executive. But even earlier than that, you refer back to your boyhood experience and the fact that you knew Walter O'Malley when you were just a little schoolboy. There was a uh, a school in Brooklyn called Froebel Academy. My, my, I had a very secular family, and this was a school with a uh, essentially an Episcopalian orientation, so I could, but you'd throw me out of the studio, sing for you the doxology. Luckily for you, I'm not going to do that. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain two, three, four thee. This was the school, Carlton M. Saunders, headmaster. And during the Depression, my dad had been a college baseball player, and then he, he was asked if he'd take over the athletic program without fee, which he did. And O'Malley got on the board of trustees, and being O'Malley, became chairman of the board of trustees, although, of course, he was, he was Roman Catholic. I knew O'Malley then, the family knew O'Malley then, as a lawyer for a bank who did collections. In later years, O'Malley told me he had been an admiralty lawyer. I call this kind of, this part of his life, Walter's Whoppers. One that I just <laughs> think, not, you know, he's, he'd said to me once, well, when the uh, war ended, this very rich fellow came over to me and he said he wanted to buy the Dodgers because he had a kid who was a little bit confused and had been hurt in the South Pacific. And I turned him down, he said, and that's why John Kennedy is not alive today because I would not sell the club to Joe Kennedy. Joe Kennedy wanted to buy the Dodgers and make Jack Kennedy president. Is that true? Well, whenever I could confront O'Malley with one of his stories that seemed to be dubious, he would look at me and say, well, what you have to understand, Roger, is only half the lies the Irish tell are true. How many baseball drunkards are there? Well, John Lardner once picked an all-time, all-alcoholic team. <laughs> Who uh, was on it? Everybody. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, I, well, George Herman Ruth yeah. played right field. Uh, Bobo Newsom pitched. Of course, Gorba Cleveland Alexander was a, uh, an alcoholic. On the Dodgers, Billy Cox. Uh, you know, drunkard, uh, I traveled with the, the great Cleveland Indian team from Phoenix to the east in the spring of 54. And I know that that was a ball club that liked the martini before or two or three before dinner and stingers afterwards. A lot of heavy drinking. Whitey Ford liked to drink. Casey Stengel drank and drank. And Stengel was a nice, was a wonderful drunk because the more he had to drink, the more friendly he became. Billy Martin, the more he had to drink, the more he wanted to punch all nearby people in the mouth. Yeah, I, I have a Billy Martin story. During the uh, Billy Martin's last days with the A's, we got a chance to sit in the press box, and the A's were getting creamed once again, and some old-timer, I don't know who he worked for, but he was an old-timer who was there every time. It was the sixth, seventh inning. The uh, A's were losing like eight or nine to one. I mean, this is before Canseco. And the guy looks up at uh, my friend and I sitting there and says, up. Oh, Billy's gone, must be in the back with his bottle of vodka. <laughs> right, right. Well, it, it, the history of of, of baseball, uh, I mean, let's go back to an earlier time, Al Simmons, uh, you know, who's he? Well, he was a Hall of Fame player for the Philadelphia Athletics, and he was famous for batting with his foot in the bucket. And my dad who told me often about Simmons' foot in the bucket. That simply means that you, you're... Uh, uh, you appear to be throwing your weight away from the direction of the flight. Too much technical stuff. Anyway, he was a Hall of Fame hitter. Dodgers are out in Milwaukee when the Braves moved there from Boston, and I go into a pub, 
and a guy with a beard, uh, three days, four days ago with a beard, is introduced to me as Al Simmons, and I say, Mr. Simmons, this is an honor. My father told me a great deal about you, and he said, you like the way I hit kid? I never saw him hit, but I said, my father did, sir. He said, buy me a beer. He didn't have a dime. Uh, Jimmy Fox, these al alcoholic endings. You know, you're traveling a lot, and there's a lot of free time, and it's a society in which uh, you you know you you can drink a lot, and at that age, as Casey Stengel used to say, you know they can drink all night. Twenty two years old, take a glass of milk and be ready to play nine innings. Uh, Mantle's drinking is not quite as legendary as his home runs, but it's significant. Then Steve Howe really comes from a very long and distinguished background. Except drinking, uh, except during the prohibition, wasn't illegal. I think that's a significant distinction. You could destroy your life in a lot of ways. Uh, I think the horror of drugs for the cops who try to keep baseball honest is that if somebody gets involved in illegal activity, he is subject to blackmail by gambling. Now, no matter how much you drink, what's the bartender going to do? Uh, <laughs> if you, if you don't, you're going to have to pay your bill. So I, I feel that there's a, a significant distinction between boozing and, uh, and messing with heroin. You mentioned a lot of players in the era, and, and depending on the age of the reader, I'm the right age, right? Walensky there is a little bit too young. But, uh, I mean, this was just suddenly I was nine years old again as I was reading the book, uh, sitting at my father's knee, who was a lifetime Brooklyn Dodgers fan and uh, had the good timing to die in 1957, so he never had to see them in L.A. Uh -huh. But one of the players that I grew up just fascinated by was this fellow, Buck Newsom. You mentioned him as the most traded player in of, of all time. I have to look up exactly what I wrote, but he was constantly, constantly in motion. I mean, uh, you, you hear man in motion in, uh, in some other sport. What is that? Football. It's a sport I don't care much for, but Bobo Bucky Newsom. Let's see what happened to him. Let's see where he, where he played. And I also would say about Bucky Newsom that he was someone that was described as a, uh, Right-handed pitcher, but a switch drinker. He could raise a glass with either hand. <laughs> that's, that's John Lawton. Here's what, what did happen to okay, him. Okay, here's what happened to Bucky Newsom. Here is the order of the teams for which Bobo Newsom pitched. The Brooklyn Dodgers, the Cubs, the St. Louis Browns, the Washington Senators, the Boston Red Sox, the Browns again, the Tigers, the Senators again, the Dodgers again, the Browns again, again, the Senators again, again the Philadelphia Athletics, the Senators, again, again, again. And then on July 11, 1947, Washington released Newsom, and he became a New York Yankee. Nobody since the Jurassic Age has been traded that many times. Another interesting player of the same era, I was delighted that you mentioned him. Again, a childhood favorite of mine that I doubt that anybody within a 100-mile range, except you and me, Roger Kahn, remember Clint Floppy Hartung, the Hondo Hurricane. Please talk about Clint Hartung. I couldn't get everything in the era because I, I would, couldn't get every story because they, they didn't want me to write a, uh, uh, an Encyclopedia Britannic uh, came out of Texas, and he was a terrific ball player. He was a terrific pitcher. And he was a terrific outfielder, and he was a terrific hitter, but just not quite terrific enough ever 
to be a star. So he came with his, to the Giants with these enormous publicity billings and uh, never lived up to them. Now, in those days, during the year, it was a lot of train travel, and teams, Giants would leave Phoenix and get on a train and play a game in one town against Cleveland and a game in another town against Cleveland, and you'd play 18 or 20 straight games in these one-night stands. So you'd Beaumont, Wichita Falls, and so forth. A fellow named Bill wrote a, wrote a story about Clint Hartung, who by this time the magic was gone. He knew he was not going to be a great success, and he was lonely and frustrated, and he would look everywhere for pinball machines, and that was his great avocation, playing pinball, and he became a, a superstar pinball player. Uh, Rhoda wrote a story about the, this young man whose dreams were now failing and his obsession with pinball. And the Giants played in Beaumont, and the story was in the paper. And the Giants played in Houston, and the story was in the paper. And the Giants played in Dallas, and the story was in the paper because it was a syndicated story. And each time, each town, they'd wait for the Giants, and they'd run this Hondo Hartung at the pinball machine story. And finally, he burst in on Leo DeRocher, and he said, what's a fine on this club for punching a newspaper man? And Leo actually said, just don't do not do it. I thought there should be a series of fines, a beat reporter, a syndicated columnist, higher fine. <laughs> but Dero Rocha wasn't that sophisticated. And Hartung, Hartung said, you know, I didn't mind when an SOB wrote or wrote the story once, but when he wrote it six days in a row, it really got me mad. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever became of Hartung, is he still alive? I got he may be, you know. I'd like to ask one one question of you, Roger Kahn, that's really a, a sort of broad philosophical one. But of any person uh, on this continent, I, I think probably you're the number one candidate to be able to answer it. And that is as follows. There seems to be some sort of psychic attunement between the game of baseball and the American nation and the American character. We have other great sports, football, basketball, hockey, and, and then the non-team sports like boxing and tennis. But baseball occupies some unique quality, possesses a unique quality as the American game. Why is that? It's a perfect, perfectly constructed game. They've tried to ruin it with AstroTurf. It doesn't help it, but it doesn't ruin it. Uh, they've made the most wretched ballparks, cement cups in Cincinnati and Philadelphia. It still works. It's had an inept leadership. Redhead, Red Smith used to write about the fatheads who run baseball. Uh, they've been arrogant to the fans. But the game is marvelous. And I think one thing that has been a, a symbiosis and that there was this marvelous game taking hold in its present form early in the century, and that was about the time that American sports writing began to develop. So baseball was fortunate as it was developing. So was Ring Lardner. So was Haywood Broom. Ring Lardner is, of course, still remembered and taught for his short stories. And, um, just an absolutely wonderful uh, short storyist. And Ring Ring's writing of baseball contributes to the, the mystery of the game. If this famous short story Alibi Ike, about a player who was a very good player, but every time he made a play, he said he should have made it a little better. And the first sentence by Ring Lardner in this short story told by an illiterate ball player is this. Uh, his name was Francis X. Farrell, 
And I guess the X stood for excuse me. <laughs> that still makes me laugh. Uh, baseball had these wonderful writers. And uh, John Kieran, who, when you were a child, was a columnist in the New York Times, a friend of my dad's. And I asked him about basketball one time, and he said, uh, it just doesn't write. Red Smith said, round ball. Baseball writes. And at, so you had the, the writers, and then you had the characters. You know, explaining it is like explaining magic. I can't, you know, I, I, I can't really. But to me, it's been a father and son kind of circumstance. Uh, something I could point out, if I may. I was interviewed on this book by The Economist. That's almost like doing Larry King Live. Uh, I'm kidding, but the economist is, uh, is that a compliment or is that a complaint? Well, I would say no. We were just saying that you know to to make it in the United States, you you have to do Larry King yes. live in this society at this time. But the fellow from the Economist said uh, we're doing a story on uh, Jew Jewish Americans and baseball, and I said, well, I think that's offensive because uh, you, you wouldn't refer to Thomas Jefferson as a deist American, and I wouldn't I wouldn't much like to be referred to as a Jewish American. He said, but we feel. This is from London, that uh, the reason so many Jewish writers and Jewish people have been involved in baseball is that it's a way of becoming American. So I said, well, since my family left Alsace in 1848, uh, I didn't really have any difficulty thinking that I was American. My father played college ball, but what it was for me was a way to be close to my dad. And when... All of the, the world was on, it was ablaze with Mussolini and, and Hitler and the Japanese militarists. Uh, my father wouldn't really discuss the, the politics of the world with me, but we could discuss catches, could discuss line drives, ground balls. So it became for me an entry into, into the world of men. And then my father gave me Christy Mathewson's marvelous book, Pitching in a Pinch. I still have that. It's the Boy Scout book of the year in 1912. And my mother, who despaired that I would ever read anything like Thomas Hardy, gave me some Ring Lardner short stories to read. The game is in trouble now, but for this century, it's been a, a magic and quite wonderful part of American life. You mentioned baseball writers, and I immediately thought of a, of a former guest on this show, W.P. Kinsella, Bill Kinsella. Now, there is no Bill Kinsella writing about golf or any other sport that I can think of. And there's no Roger Angel writing about golf or any other sport either. I guess there is. Uh, Herbert Warren Wynn writes golf every bit as well as Angel writes about baseball. But I think that magazine pieces are, are something aside. The best baseball magazine writer that I've ever encountered was John Lardner, who wrote a series on, uh, on the Black Sox, which was simply wonderful. And of course, his father was there. And while a Black Sox were throwing the World Series. Ring Lardner had a, a sang a song which went as follows. I won't sing it. I'll just give you the lyrics. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I better not. But the the words. I'm forever blowing ball games, <laughs> pretty ball games in the air. I come from shy. I never try, but the gamblers treat us fair. That was Ring Lardner, 1990. So John, coming out of that background, wrote the most amazing. Baseball magazine stuff I, I've seen. Roger Kahn, would you mind reading uh, a segment from uh, your book, The Era? There's a passage in which I, I may have a mistake, but it's a passage that I, I like about scouting. 
if I do have any mistake in this passage, it's uh, the first time in my 66 years that I've made a mistake. There's a general sense of what scouts do and what they don't do, and I don't think it's, uh, it's terribly accurate. And uh, I keep thumbing here. I once watched Robert Frost do this. He couldn't find a poem, and suddenly Frost said, Son of a bitch. And all of the old ladies sitting in the front row were absolutely horrified. So I'm not going to say anything as, as vulgar as Robert Frost. This is called Scouts, Centerfielders, and Schemers. Most scouts are, are organization men, and they're, they're trying to hedge their bets and be very careful. Uh, the old baseball scout comes down to us as a wise codger. His manner is gruff, his face is grizzled, and his car in the old baseball movies is a 1924 model A or T. The one Henry Ford said, you could get any color you wanted so long as the color you wanted was black. The old scout doesn't have much money, never has. Although he'll take a drink, he's blind to woman, to women. The old scout's life is a celibate journey, never brightened or distracted by a pretty smile in search of the rookie from Olympus. In legend, the climax always is the same. Above the steaming radiator of the faltering car, the old scout suddenly perceives a baseball in flight that seems to be leaving village, county, state. Then he sees the kid who hit it. Music pipes in here, a horn call commanding our attention. The old scout has found his rookie from Olympus, and because he is an old scout and wondrous wise, he knows at once what he has discovered. The horn music fades. The rookie trots into the picture. Say, son, the old scout says in his gruff and kindly way, have you ever heard of the major leagues? Go on a little bit to an actual scouting report. The scouting report deals with a fellow who played in the Bay Area for a while in and it's about a uh, stocky, weary old catcher out of Savannah, Tennessee. I might mention white because there's a cliche thought that all southern whites were, were bigots. Uh, John Herman Hank DeBerry. And in 1951, he filed a scouting report that I say reading here is more than a report. Old Hank DeBerry wrote a scouting poem. And 35 games that season at AAA Minneapolis. Willie Mays batted 477. Hank DeBerry watched Mays play minor league ball from May 6 through May 10. This is what he sent to the giant offices overlooking Bryant Park on 42nd Street in New York City. Sensational. The outstanding player on the club. He's now on the best hitting streak imaginable. He hits all pitches. He hits to all fields. Everything he does is sensational. He runs and throws with the best. He makes the most spectacular catches. He slides hard. He plays hard. The Louisville pitchers knocked him down plenty. It did, had no effect on him at all. He's as popular with local fans as can be, a real favorite. This player is the best prospect in America. It was a banner day for the Giants when this boy was signed. On September 10, 1951, the Giants were closing in on the Dodgers, after a torporific start, the team had fallen 13 games behind, but with Willie Mays in center field, 
the team awakened. By September 10, the Dodger lead was less than six games. That day in Savannah, Tennessee, a heart attack killed the old scout, Hank DeBerry. I like to think that before he died, when he gazed at Willie Mays, Hank DeBerry saw his promised land. Was Mays the greatest player you ever saw? Mays was the greatest player I ever saw. I, I, I get abused by that, the DiMaggio coterie. And once I said to uh, a New York restaurant character uh, named Toot Shore, who it's, it's called a watering hole. The only water was in the in the bourbon and the scotch. And Toots was a he was a press secretary for DiMaggio and kind of a complicated, vulgar guy. Hard to stay angry at. There's a little passage in the ear where my former wife, a lady from Pennsylvania, and she was quite pregnant. We walked in. And uh, Shore extended his index finger and placed it on Alice's navel and said, you've been doing that thing again. Uh, she, <laughs> she, she blushed. Every visible part of her body turned red. Two weeks later, when the child was born, Shore sent a dozen roses to the hospital. I found it difficult to stay angry at the vulgarity of Toot Shore. Toot Shore had a table where DiMaggio sat, where chosen people were invited. And one day... When I said to Shore, I think, Toots, that Willie Mays runs faster than DiMaggio, throws better than DiMaggio, is certainly more durable than DiMaggio, and catches fly balls that DiMaggio could not have caught, Toots Shore said, kid, don't advertise your ignorance. DiMaggio worked for Casey Stengel in the later years of Joe's career. In the earlier years, he worked for Joe McCarthy. Yes. How did he get along with McCarthy, and how did he get along with Stengel? Uh, Joe got along with McCarthy well, although one year when he had a chance to hit 400, McCarthy wouldn't sit him, and Joe was a little unhappy about that. But that was the same year that Lou Gehrig was his fatal illness was uh, known, and Joe said, "You played, you played without a unless you had a broken leg, you played." McCarthy was called to his horror a push button manager. He ran a kind of a tightly disciplined Yankee team. There was a little chaos after the war when the late Larry McPhail took over. There were a series of managers, and uh, the Yankees were not doing much until Stengel. Uh, they won in 47, but there was chaos, and there was not too much discipline. They brought in Stengel in 1949. Stengel, well, a press conference was called at the 21 Club, and uh, the Yankees asked DiMaggio to uh, stick around and sort of support Stengel. Stengel got up, called the president of the Yankees by the wrong name, and the first question was, "What? Do you, how do you feel about managing Joe DiMaggio? And Stengel said, well, uh, I ain't been in the league, you know, so I ain't really seen the guy much, and what's the next question? It just an, it insulted an icon. That spring, as Stengel began to bring his platooning devices, techniques, to Bear, which he had learned somewhat from John McGraw, the legendary manager of the Giants early in the century. Uh, DiMaggio sought out Arthur Daly, the New York Times sports columnist, and said, you know, this manager, I, I, nev I never saw a guy so confused in my life. By the end of their period in the era, uh, when they were on the same team, when uh, Casey was managing and Joe was the center fielder, they, it was 1951, they were no longer speaking. In the era, you discuss a little bit about how pitchers were used, and Allie Reynolds could relieve, he could start. Things, <laughs> things have changed a little bit now. We have our specialty pitchers. 
When Roger Craig ran the Giants into the ground, he ran it into the ground by treating every pitcher as if that pitcher was Allie Reynolds. <laughs> uh, I'd like you to talk a little bit about this specialty pitching, the idea of the, the Dennis Eckersley-type closer or, you know, we're in the Bay Area, the Rick Honeycutt or Mike Jackson-type setup man and the starting pitcher that now only goes five innings. That's, you know, a huge change. If you go back historically in 1905 World Series, uh, Christy Mathewson pitched three games in six days for the New York Giants and pitched not only three games in six days, he pitched three shutouts in six days, and in 27 innings, he walked one. They say, oh, dead ball. I don't care if you're throwing a beanbag. One walk in 27 innings. At the end of that World Series, I saw a New York Times editorial that said, one side of the bat should be flattened because it is impossible to hit somebody like Christy Mathewson with a round bat. <laughs> you know, what, what a compliment. What a compliment. I saw the evolution uh, at Stengel, I think, is the really the godfather of, of uh, modern baseball. What he, well, when I traveled with the Yankees, this would be 1954 or so, the fellow was bright as Fred Hutchinson, manager of the Tigers. He'd have one pitcher in the bullpen at a time, maybe a right-hander, maybe a left-hander. He'd bring in the right-hander. Stengel would throw in a couple of left-handed pinch hitters. Womp! By the time he could get somebody else going, uh, the game was lost. So Stengel was the first man I saw who would have multiple relief pitchers. He was the... I never saw anybody who had Stengel sense. You can see it in the World Series. He'd throw in Joe Page, his great relief pitcher, in the fourth inning. And he'd say, just go as long as you can go, Allie Reynolds. First of all, Stengel gave me a, a, a description of Reynolds once. Stengel did not like, Casey Stengel did not like magazines. And he did not like a lot of writers because to Stengel there were only two kinds of writers in the world. There were my writers and then there were the enemies. And I was a my writer because I traveled with the team for a while. And I was working on the Herald Tribune in New York. He said, but all right, you're one of my writers, so I'll help you. What do you got to do? I said, they want me to write a piece about Allie Reynolds. And Stengel said, Reynolds is the greatest, starting and relieving. And I seen the great ones, Christy Mathewson and Cy Young. And I wondered who that fat old guy was, which shows you what a dumb young punk I was. You could look that up. That was... <laughs> <laughs> Was Stengel sort of the Eisenhower of baseball? <laughs> you, you know, you, you, you tuned into the language with Jerry Coleman, who uh, people uh, it was a, makes fun of, his, of some of his malapropisms, but Jerry's a very bright guy. He said, you know what Casey was the greatest at? Where somebody would say, who's a better ball player when DiMaggio was still on the Yankees case, uh, Babe Ruth or uh, Joe DiMaggio? And Stengel does not want to answer the question because he doesn't want the DiMaggio situation to get any worse. So he starts to talk about three other things, and now he's back to 1914 and John McGraw and Christy Mathewson and Cy Young. And by that time, the questioner has forgotten what his question was. Which brings up my question about the pitchers. <laughs> <laughs> it began, really, I think, with the, with the Yankees' use of... Uh, you, you didn't use everybody the way you used Allie Reynolds. You had to have a very strong uh, feller, and Allie Reynolds was a very strong fellow. Allie Reynolds was a very intimidating fellow. 
But Ali Reynolds never went over 300 innings a year. Uh, again, I don't want to get obsessively technical, but uh, the, the Koufax did. And look what happened to Koufax. His arm fell off. He couldn't pitch much past 30. But Sandy got a circulatory problem, and he, Sandy had a pitch. So he used Reynolds a lot, but he didn't use him more than 300 innings. He once in a while would even use Vic Rashi, but he wouldn't use him over more than 300. What do I think about setup men and short men and medium men and uh, – it's the way the game is played today. I think one reason it's played that way is that anybody can hit a home run. I think there were days in in the 50s when there's some fellows in the lineup, just just throw fastballs over the plate on the corners. Don't worry about, you know, you can just, you can just throw it in there. You can't do that so much today. Why do you think that is? Because I, I think there's a, a rabbit in the ball. You think it's more powerful? I think the I think the ball is is uh, is livelier, and I think that that's a commercial decision. Home runs are, are profitable. How, how many people go to see a ball game to see a a, a one to nothing game? I do. I do. Well, I on. do. All right. <laughs> okay. Well, let's if if they ever have a new commissioner, let's tell them deaden the <laughs> ball a little bit, Buster. Uh, uh, mounds are different. Surface is different. Uh, Maybe they know something in modern baseball that, that uh, even Stengel and DeRosha didn't know. However, I still thrill to a great pitcher at the top of his form going nine. If Bob Gibson were pitching today, he'd finish a hell of a lot of games. We saw Nolan Ryan pitch his no-hitter here in Oakland two years ago. The whole crowd was cheering for the other team. That is, they were cheering for Ryan. 50,000 of us or however many were there knew what was happening and knew that this was a once-in-a-lifetime experience for us, although it was, what, seven-in-a-lifetime for him. Yes, yes. But I once saw Koufax in the polo grounds where, very briefly, the uh, the Mets played. And I was taken by Buzzy Bavese, the, the executive, and I was sitting right, right near home plate. And it was not a question of whether Koufax was going to beat the Mets. He was going to beat the Mets. It was not a question of whether he was going to pitch a shutout. He was going to shut out the Mets. Only question was a no-hitter. In the seventh inning, uh, Ron Hunt hit a ground ball. We say we had eyes. Fourteen hops, but it got through. Koufax scowled, and he began just to throw Koufax fastballs. It was really like seeing a major leaguer against little league. Uh, that was how dominant Koufax was. Roger Kahn, you have a, a long section in your book about Walter O'Malley and how he changed the sport. If you can read a little bit of that, uh, that would be great. And then I want to talk a little about the upcoming changes in the coming season, which scare the hell out of me because uh, I've been a baseball fan for since I was a little kid. And... The thought of there not really being a pennant race anymore, but being tiered playoffs, to me, is the single most destructive thing I've seen. That includes the DH. That's a lot to mull over and, and, and do this very simple character, Walter O'Malley. Somebody had said that in a list, two newspaper men sat together and said, Let, let's make a list of the three worst human beings of the 20th century. And the story is they both made the same Three, they had the same three names on the list: uh, Hitler, Stalin, O'Malley. That's a story that's told a lot. Not, you know, not 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 really so. And you know, and kind of so outrageous. Uh, Walter had his whoppers, but what I will tell you uh, is, it's Walter 
had found that the Flavian Amphitheater in Rome had a canvas roof, a retractable canvas roof. Slaves, he said, worked winches. Turned out that they weren't slaves, they were sailors. The winches were somewhat uh, related to the rigging of a ship. So it was possible uh, to watch on a, in Rome in 90 AD uh, on a rainy Sunday, uh, uh, lions eat Christians and not get wet. <laughs> <laughs> that canvas dome was called uh, the Valerium. It is so. I, my son is an architect. We went over some old architecture books, and O'Malley knew that. Uh, so he proposed in Brooklyn that there be a domed stadium. And what about the grass? Well, they're going to do some agronomy, but maybe there could be some sort of retractable dome. It was after uh, the 1955 World Series, Walter O'Malley summoned the press a few days later. The press wanted to talk about the World Series. O'Malley was going beyond that. He said he had told the writers he had commissioned Buckminster Fuller of Princeton to design a new Dodger stadium as a geodesic dome. A sports writer asked how to spell the word. Dome, Buzzy Bavese said, D-O-M-E. Are you going to give Johnny Padres a raise, somebody asked. We're here to talk about the geodesic dome, O'Malley said. Nobody took him or Buckminster Fuller seriously. Dick Young, a fiery tabloid journalist and a heck of a reporter, insisted that O'Malley told him that he wanted to get out of Ebbets Field because the area is getting full of blacks and <laughs> O'Malley denied having said any such thing. Oh, yeah, Young parried when I pressed him, when Roger Kahn pressed him. O'Malley also said the trouble with Brooklyn was that the place had too many blacks and <laughs> and Jews. Certainly, O'Malley was most comfortable with his Roman Catholic cadre, Bavese and Fresco Thompson and Jackie Robinson discomforted him. But to simply depict O'Malley as a blatant racist is both cruel and unfair, and it isn't really accurate. He was making great money in Brooklyn, making a profit of something like 200% a year. But he had this dream, and this dream was that he would build a new ballpark. I think part of the dream came from the fact that Branch Rickey, his predecessor, had integrated baseball. And O'Malley wanted to do something equally memorable and build the first dome stadium. No one paid attention in 1955 when O'Malley sold Ebbets Field for $3 million. He also sold ballparks that the Dodgers owned in Fort Worth in Montreal for $1 million each. That's $5 million, he said. And that's the money that will one day or one, one day uh, go into our new Brooklyn ballpark. But he also invested some of the $5 million into acquiring the Los Angeles franchise in the Pacific Coast League. He thus owned territorial rights to Los Angeles, and Walter O'Malley was now ready to play his own special game, Stroke and Tomahawk. My roots are New York, O'Malley told Mayor Robert Wagner at City Hall on June 2, 1957. People in Los Angeles want the Dodgers to move. They've made flattering offers. I am in no way committed. What do you want, Wagner asked. Air rights over the Long Island Railroad Station at Atlantic Avenue and Flatbush Avenue in downtown Brooklyn. The Dodgers don't want anything else. We'll pay for the new ballpark by ourselves. 
Wagner's a pleasant person, part Tammany hack, part liberal reformer, and totally overmatched in negotiating with O'Malley. Robert Moses, New York's commissioner of parks and everything else, was the principal city player. Through a series of appointments, Moses controlled not only parks, but highways and urban projects, and urbanologists generally regard Moses as the single most powerful figure in 20th century New York City government. Moses put hard questions to O'Malley. Moses, you aren't suggesting that four or five million dollars is enough to build the dome stadium you proposed. O'Malley conceded the cost could be higher, but he said that the Dodgers are prepared to sell a bond issue to citizens of Brooklyn backed by the full faith and credit of our franchise. I have no doubt, Mr. Moses, none whatsoever, about our ability to finance ourselves. Further, O'Malley said he was negotiating with Matthew Fox of Skyatron to put our games on subscription TV. The technology then, this is 1955, involved a coin box on television sets. Fans would have to put two quarters into the box to unscramble pictures of Dodger games. These receipts will help us pay for the new ballpark. Robert Moses was incredulous. Engineers and electronic experts, O'Malley said, tell me coin box television is no problem at all. As a matter of fact, Moses said, I don't want to see a baseball field at all in downtown Brooklyn. These streets will never handle all the cars. O'Malley said his plans for the Dome Stadium over the Long Island Railroad included such good access that most people would come to the park by train. Moses, you are in error, Mr. O'Malley. If I let you build your domed stadium, your ball games will create a China wall of traffic in Brooklyn. No one will be able to pass. Where would you prefer that we relocate, O'Malley said. Moses, I have a lovely parcel of land in Flushing Meadow at the old World's Fair site in Queens. O'Malley looked steadily at Robert Moses. If my team is forced to play in the borough of Queens, he said, they will no longer be the Brooklyn Dodgers. And that's where Shea Stadium is. <laughs> nor do the Brooklyn Dodgers play there. That's true. Actually, one of O'Malley's lieutenants said to me, Anyway, you can't build a stadium out there because it's on filled land and the stadium would sink. If we put the stadium where Robert Moses wants us to put the stadium in five years, the upper deck will be the lower deck. (laughs) (laughs) O'Malley changed the game by moving the Dodgers and convincing Stoneham to move the Giants out here. Uh, Next year, the next season, the uh, owners have proposed, and I, I, it seems like a fait accompli. Well, the, the commissioner might turn it down, though. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that there be a, a second tier of playoffs. Now, a, a lot of us purists hated that first tier, still do. And, in fact, it was one of the joys, I think, of this past baseball season that the first tier of playoffs mattered less than the race between the two best teams in baseball, the Giants and the Braves, at least my opinion. And I think uh, the victories bear that out. Yes. What do you think about these changes? And uh, do you think these people are worse than uh, than O'Malley and Stoneham and company? I think about the changes is that, that you know, they're, they're, uh, they're turning baseball into hockey where, you know, you play, you play for six months to eliminate one team. 
the Anaheim Ducks. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's perfectly, perfectly ridiculous. It's fun to watch hockey, but you really don't take the pennant races, or, you know, seriously in the various divisions of hockey. So it's not a mongrelizing of baseball; it's a hockeyizing of of baseball. I think it's a bad idea, but I see the baseball problem in a larger context. I see it as uh, the numbers of problems. The first one is getting a sensible television policy. There, there is none. Pete Rosell came out of, I met Pete Rosell, he was a publicity man for Qantas Airways. A little quick aside, Warren Spahn said of Casey Stengel, I knew him both before and after he was a genius. Uh, <laughs> that's referring to the Braves and the Mets after the Yankees. So Pete was a travel agent, he figured out how to work a policy in pro football that was a triumph. And I think the man in basketball, I don't know, David Stern, seems to be a wonderful marketer. Baseball has a problem with its marketing. It has a problem with its dealings with the baseball union and Don Pear. It has a problem with its ball players and the press. A new hostility from players toward the press and a kind of a desire by the press uh, in many cases to um, rip the players. There should be some seminars. I think you could you would do well to try to bring the writers and the players a little bit closer together. So th these are all parts of the pro of, of a problem, the problem of uh, somebody shooting Clorox at the eye of a sports writer, Brett Saberhagen. You're suspended for a year. That's it. The union wants to make a grievance, go ahead and make a grievance. And you want, you want to get Brett Saberhagen's attention, you can't fine him enough, withhold the salary for a year. These are huge problems, and I, I, you know, sorting out how you do a pennant race without saying how do you televise the game, which is what's happening. They're doing these things piecemeal. No excuse for these horrible ballparks in Cincinnati and Philadelphia. Uh, no excuse for that. You're not going to have any new ballparks with AstroTurf. The Baltimore ballpark is a gem. Look at the mistakes they made on the way. So I feel O'Malley with all of his Machiavellian nature, was a hell of a lot smarter than the people who run the game today. And I don't like to see these changes made in a piecemeal way. I'd like somebody to come out of the wilderness. I mean, somebody to lead baseball out of its business wilderness. Somebody with the eloquence of Branch Rickey take over and provide some leadership and knock some heads together. Uh, so what I guess baseball needs more than the discussion of schedule or unions or money or press is uh, one great commissioner, and I don't think Thomas Jefferson is available. I was raised, you know, as you were, to say that when there's a great crisis in this country, a Lincoln appears, a Roosevelt appears, and that may be a sort of maniacal optimism, but I think somebody will come along. Well, on a cheerier note, and I use the word uh, deliberately, uh, you mentioned one more name in your book that absolutely set my heart to going pitter-patter. Would you talk about Gladys Gooding? Well, Gladys Gooding was the, uh, answers the answer to a trivia question in New York. Who was the only person who played for the Rangers, the Knicks, and the Dodgers? That's Gladys Gooding, and she was the organist at Ebbets Field, and she was the organist also at Madison Square Garden. I try to, you know, to be... Pretty accurate here. Gladys played on the last night in Ebbets Field when, incidentally, the attendance was something like uh, 6,702, last game in Ebbets Field. She was sitting there, and these are the songs that I found she played. And then I want to mention something else. This is from the book. 
She played in order last night in Brooklyn. Am I blue? What can I say, dear, after I've said I'm sorry? Thanks for the memory when I grow too old to dream, when the blue of the night meets the gold of the day and old Lang Syne. I heard, I have not been able to confirm, that Gladys had a few pops that night, and in about the eighth inning, she began to play Chopin's Funeral March, which we knew was <laughs> where will we all be a hundred years from now, pushing up the daisies, and she played it, and O'Malley said, Stop that immediately, Walter O'Malley shouted. The organ uh, was played in a little hanging box that hung from the upper deck, and the door was locked. And O'Malley screamed and raged, and Gladys Gooding continued to play Chopin's Funeral March. And so Major League Baseball left Brooklyn for all eternity. Uh, she's always a good test of spelling because it was two O's and two D's. <laughs> Is Barry Bonds almost as good as Willie Mays? Sure. She's, she's almost as good as Willie Mays. I, uh, but you remember, I saw Mays day after day for um for years and i i'm not as good as hank deberry i can't look at somebody for a week and say this is the most sensational player in america i think one of the things with bonds is give him a little more time i think willie's ability to rise as in the 1954 world series with that phenomenal catch and a phenomenal throw i haven't seen bonds as a postseason player comparable to willie mays what about dave stewart as a postseason player well, he's having a pretty good, uh, having a pretty good, pretty good run for an older for an older feller. I, I I root for I root for older guys. Actually, one of the I mean, postseason Jackie Robinson was not was not a great World Series player. Few few know that he uh, he stole some bases and such. He wasn't a great World Series hitter, I should say. Bobby Brown, the president of the American League, was a phenomenal World Series hitter. Once in the World Series, nineteen hundred and forty-eight, Ted Williams and Stan Musial played against each other in the World Series. They hit 400 between the two of them. They each hit around 200. <laughs> you tell a story in the era about a proposed trade between the Yankees and the Red Sox, Joe DiMaggio for Ted Williams. Would, would you repeat that story and then project, if you would, what what would have happened if that trade had gone through? Uh, that's a uh, a trade was was made at Tutsure's restaurant, and it was made. Uh, a certain amount of whiskey was poured, like a tremendous amount of whiskey was poured. And there at table one in Tutsures, there was uh, the owner, uh, the managing partner of the Yankees, and that was Larry McPhail. And uh, the owner of the Boston Red Sox, his name was Tom Yorkie. And they were drinking together, and uh, McPhail got an idea. Larry McPhail got an idea. He said, I have this uh, big Dago in center field. He hits the hell out of the ball, but to left center. We got a spot out in the left center in the stadium. It's 470 feet from home. He hits these tremendous drives, home runs anywhere else, and in my ballpark, they're just long outs. That's the way the game is, Yorkie said. I get the skinny kid, pulls everything left-handed. He hits these long balls to right and right center, and in my ballpark, right center reaches 420 feet from home. The men drank some more. Yorkie wanted to know what McPhail thought about Branch Rickey's plan to bring Negroes into baseball. Tutshore later recalled the conversation for me. Uh, Going to kill our business, McPhail said. Yorkie nodded. 
The Red Sox did not employ a black until 1959, fully 12 years after Robinson's debut. They were both drinking hard, and they were getting along very well. After a while, at 2 in the morning, McPhail proposed his trade. The big day go for the skinny kid. No cash, no other ball players. Even up, Joe DiMaggio over Ted Williams. Hell of an idea, Yorkie said. Put the Dago up there with your close-in left field wall, McPhail said. He'll hit 60 homers. Right, Yorkie said. Put the kid in the stadium with the right field stand so close, and he'll hit 70. We got a deal? We got a deal. Shake, skull. Let's have another. Next day, Yorkie telephones. I can't do it, Larry. I thought we had a deal. We did. I'm not denying it, but I can't do it. They let Babe Ruth out of Boston. If I let Williams go, the fans will crucify me. You'll make new fans. Every Italian in New England will pay to see my guy. No deal, Yorkie said. Excuse me, I've got to go and get a Broma seltzer. What would have happened if they'd made the deal? I think DiMaggio would have, would have hit more than 60 in Boston. And Williams would have hit 70 in New York? Yeah, I don't think Williams was, a, was as good a pressure player as DiMaggio. But certainly, I, I think it could very well have been that Roger Maris would have never broken the existing record because the existing home run record could have been 72. Dick Lupoff and I would interview Roger Kahn once more in 1998. But that interview focused not on baseball, but on a biography of boxer Jack Dempsey. After this interview, dated October 13, 1993, Roger Kahn would go on to write six more books. My co-host for the interview was Richard A. Lupoff. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>